0: People often think about meditation being this, like, disciplined, thoughtful thing. You're going to build this habit. You're going to have this, like, deep internal peace and calm, like a ninja, and, like, the craziness of the world around you isn't going to get to you. And, like, um, I think that image can very quickly lead to, like, a self, like, a very subtle form of self-criticism, which is, like, I'm not that. And how am I going to get there? And, like, I think the journey to this hypothetical ninja is 100% first with self-compassion. Like, and there's, there's a couple of additional like, heuristics that I think are valuable here.
1: All right, listeners, I'm going to make this intro short. I'm super stoked to be bringing you this episode. It's going to be with Stephen Zerfus, and we're going to talk all sorts of things. Habit building, meditation, um, sort of what it means to start and build a meditation practice, as well as different states of meditation, kind of Stephen's journey to learning how to meditate but also to creating a company that is trying to help people reach um, beneficial how would you say transcendental or intense meditation states and these meditation states are called jhanas so um, think of it almost as kind of a, a hallucinogenic experience you could say but less so just a kind of blissful peaceful experience that happens when uh, you meditate in a certain way. Um, typically with experienced meditators, this this can happen, but it doesn't always happen. So Stephen thinks that this can be life-changing and is creating a company to help kind of more and more people access these these awesome meditation states that, that really change people's lives. So we'll talk about that, but we also talk about kind of Stephen's journey as a founder, how he quit everything and learn to code from scratch, started working um, in Silicon Valley, and then quit everything and learned neuroscience from scratch. So um, we also talk about habit building, kind of learning how to learn, and yeah, meditation's role in, you know, mental health and how that relates to society. So there's lots and lots of good stuff in this podcast, and I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. Anyway, without further ado, let's get this thing started. Oh, and keep an eye out for some changes in the podcast in the near future, um, potentially doing a little rebranding, and also, as always, if anybody's interested in audio engineering or helping with the podcast, um, yeah, don't be afraid to reach out because it's always more work than I think it's going to (laughs) be. Anyway, like I said, let's get started. And I guess I'll start by letting you tell uh, them about what you're doing.
0: Sure. Uh, So I am the founder of Journey, a company attempting to make peak states inspired by meditation more accessible. And uh, so it turns out that five to 15,000 or so people in the States have truly peak experiences when they meditate, think like tears of joy, overwhelming gratitude. And uh, brain images of these states uh, confirm that they are pretty remarkable. Uh, the people who, who have learned to enter into these states consistently talk about it in the most hyperbolic of terms. It's like better than orgasm, um, life changing. Um, uh, what's the, oh, uh, completely dissolved me of the notion that happiness comes from outside myself. Um, one one quote that I think captures, uh, it's very mundane, but captures uh, the significance nonetheless is why would I have a second piece of chocolate cake when I know it can beat that by 100x in 10 minutes with my eyes closed? Um, And so these are these are like really um deep profound states that uh are big mental health win and uh, unfortunately it takes a lot of time to learn how to do these and so it's you know hundreds of hours of practice and a lot of that is guesswork there's a tremendous amount of variance some people learn really quickly some people uh uh, learn in like months or, or never um and the thesis is well how can we cut out the guesswork uh it's a lot easier to uh, imitate or, or or learn something if you really know what the the feedback like if, if you have really good tight feedback loops And so um, we are working on putting that feedback loop in place by using EEG to measure the neural correlates of these states to know what they look like under an EEG and then play the feedback back to you in Real-time uh, to cut out the guesswork of finding these states
1: Okay, so there's a there's a lot to unpack there and I guess I'll start with kind of like the simple questions, right? so you mentioned these transcendental meditation states right so could we start maybe by defining a little bit um you described what people what people say about them and like how they feel but describe a little bit how people get there traditionally and yeah i guess what the experiences are like i know there's levels right but for for someone yeah. unfamiliar yeah so
0: for someone who's unfamiliar i uh, they there's a there's an analogy i like to use and that is uh, when you're caught in uh, a little bit of anxiety. So if you notice that when you have like your first anxious thought, it's nowhere near as burdensome as your like hundredth anxious anxious thought. Maybe ten minutes later, uh, at that point, you're, like you're really riled up. You run this loop so many times, and there's probably a physiological response. Maybe you started sweating a little bit or cringing, like tensioning up some sort of some some sort of muscles this this kind of process by which a little bit of concentration and attention, if like run, if that flywheel really gets turning, having physiological responses, is something that can also happen in the in a positive direction. Uh, the extreme version of like an anxiety loop ends up in uh, something like a panic attack. I, I've actually I've never experienced a panic attack, but um, people who have explained it to me suggest it, it comes on in that way. Well, a jhana comes on in a very similar way. The Jhanas are the um, the the uh, name of these states as practiced by. Um, by these meditators. And so what you do is you um, get yourself to a a calm and quiet and steady mind, and then you go looking for a pleasant sensation. And this pleasant sensation might start like very physical on your body. Maybe you put a little smile on your lips, um, or maybe it's a tingling in your hands, or maybe you you pull up a a really nice pleasant memory. Um, And then you do this subtle shift where you, you, instead of looking at the pleasant sensation, you shift to the pleasantness of the pleasant sensation. And You just let that, because you've got like a relatively calm and quiet mind, you just sit on that and you let that flywheel start to turn and it turns and turns and for a while it'll it'll like slowly get bigger. And then at some point there's like a nonlinear takeoff point. This thing goes exponential and it just, it takes you into what's clearly an altered state.
1: You speak of like this altered state and you've described, people describe it kind of in, you said like hyperbolic terms. Is there, is there consistency across these reports and is it something that's is it describable if you haven't been there before, or is it kind of something that's a little, I guess, out of uh, verbiage?
0: Yeah, I, I those are interesting questions. I like those. So um, it's very consistent. That's one of the things that is so exciting about this uh, is the the fact that a number of people have such consistent way to describe their experiences. Number one, um, and number two, that some people stumble into these on acts like like. So I actually first. Stumbled into these states on accident. I didn't know what they were, but was just having these like truly peak experiences happening more and more consistently while meditating. And uh, uh, the notion that like multiple people have come at these from different angles with varying levels of knowledge, and now have this like kind of shared language of talking about them, seems to suggest that they're like these attractor basins in like the state space of meditation that are accessible to everybody uh, if you sort of are able to 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 get close enough to them. And that's exciting because it means it's likely scalable and can be used uh, in a mental health implication or, or mental health intervention. Meditation's already been a big win for mental health. This could be a particularly potent form. It'd be great to to deploy that in the same way. Um, and then your, your uh, second question was like, oh, are they relatable? Um, it, what if you've never experienced one of these before? So uh, I do think they're quite relatable. Um, I'm trying to think of the the best way to capture them. So, if you've ever just been, there are some people. I I, I don't think the entire population has had this experience, but there's some people who have just like started tearing up in awe or wonder or beauty before, and there's like a degree of rapture um, that can like or or bliss that's like associated with that. And I think that's that can be quite close to the first jhana, um, and it, it may it may be uh, actually like. The same parts of the nervous system the only difference is you you now know that with that a little bit of concentration and attention you can you can turn that flywheel to make it even bigger even bigger and like and maybe get there intentionally as opposed to being shocked by the redwoods or like at a beautiful church service or something um, the second jhana is one in which uh so, so actually the the jhanas move from a place of very high arousal to low arousal while still being very what's called positively valenced so they're they're still very pleasurable states, but they're less the lower arousal. Level. So like so, excitement um, or actually ecstasy is high arousal, high valence, and uh, serene peace is still high valence but low arousal. Um,
1: being actually- valence being um, almost uh, you know positive, right? So valence being. How positive an experience
0: it is, or how pleasurable it is. Um, that, uh, um, in psychology, you often refer to these axes of arousal versus valence, and kind of marking the corners of this like four by of this two by two. Right, you're going to have ecstasy, uh, you're going to have uh, serenity, you'll have depression and anxiety. Like anxiety is high arousal, below valence. Um, mm-hmm. So see how those uh, I think those four examples really tee these two dimensions up nicely. Well, in the jhanas, you move from like this kind of ec- this like very ecstatic, high arousal, um, uh, like almost physical in quality, uh, uh, place to uh, increasingly more serene. Uh, and so then, the, and the, the next jhana is one that is uh, often associated with a loving kindness and gratitude. And uh, then the third one is like a deep, deep contentment. And the fourth one is like a total wishlessness. And actually, one one analogy that's, that a lot of people have experience with is like, you can imagine if you're super, super thirsty, and like maybe you came off of this like 12 hour hike and you're absolutely beat. The first drink of water you have is like ecstatic. There's like nothing more in the world you want, and it's so good. And then you like guzzle your like first water bottle, maybe you move through your second. And now this is like really nice, but it gets to the point where you're totally sated and it's like and and you're really really content and then it gets to the point where all you want to do is lie down next to a tree and there seems to be nothing more pleasurable than like just falling asleep in that tree i think that maps like a similar
1: arc yeah that's that's uh that's very interesting so i so you've described pretty well what it's like to be in this experience and that that itself you know the memories of that and would be you know, you'd think it would be net positive for, for example, mental health, like you're talking about. So I'm curious as to the sort of after effects of this, right? So do people report like, you know, net increases in mood and, you know, baseline valence, I guess you could say after. Um, And so, yeah, I guess what is the, what is the long-term kind of connection with these?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there's a few, There's a few effects that go uh, beyond the cushion, some of which I think are are a really big deal. Um, And uh, I will, uh, so I'll list them. One is mentality, like there's a little bit of like a mentality of abundance. Um, Another is, and kind of closely related to this, is like um, insurance for like tough times. Um, A third is uh, like pro social behavior. and then um, there may be a fourth, which is um, I'll call like uh, therapeutic potential. So I'll do those in order. So the first one on mentality of abundance. Um, it there's some good literature around how if 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 you're experiencing a lot of scarcity, your the quality of your decision making gets worse. So uh, uh, um, Malai Nathan is a behavioral economist out of Harvard uh, who uh, who's work I've I've done a little reading of, and he has experiments where he'll take like Princeton undergrads, like like some of, the, you know, extremely sharp individuals, very like, uh, and they're at Princeton, they're at college, they're like uh, very much oriented towards like you think delayed gratification and um, long-term uh, investment. And you put them in in like a game show like environment where you're like decreasing the amount of time somebody has uh, to make decisions. And the more you do this, the more they clearly, they demonstrably make decisions that are like that that are towards instant gratification and like digging themselves out of a hole than they are for um, optimizing long term games over the course of this of this game, uh, and this has this has big implications for being in poverty actually because it it talks about how a poverty might look like an S curve and you could be in a trap where because of the scarcity you're making worse decisions which increases your scarcity and and uh, and thus the trap. Uh, well, the um, the thing about the jhanas is if you have volitional access to your own pleasure centers, like you can in you know that like in a 10 minutes notice with your eyes closed, you can bring yourself to like a, t- a truly peak experience and maybe there's an afterglow for like six hours or something. Like there's there's a degree to which you, for lack of a better phrase, like you may have like eliminated mood poverty. Um, and this can create a mentality of abundance that makes it um, such that you're more likely to uh, engage in behaviors that are less about instant gratification, thus the chocolate cake example. This also has the second effect. And this is the, the second piece that I mentioned was, was pro-social behavior. There's uh, some interesting, I think newish research about how like MDMA improves game theoretic uh, cooperation. And so if you were uh, so individuals who are moving from a place of like pharmacologically induced loving kindness, compassion for lack of a better word, uh, they're they're playing games in more game theoretically, cooperatively optimal ways. Uh, it's really easy to to move with from 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 a place of like mood abundance rather than mood poverty. In a way, that's much more pro social, and uh, people I think uh, anecdotally seem to report that too. The um, uh, third thing, shoot, I actually forget the uh, the third thing I mentioned, but the fourth thing I mentioned was um, uh, therapeutic potential, and so this is uh, there. This is. The research on this is a lot less clear. Um, it, none of the research on any of the above is like really airtight, uh, but it seems to be like it, I think directionally explaining some of the things I hear from people who are deeply in these states. This last piece is interesting. Historically, these are not an end of, in of themselves. Um, you use these states as warm up for uh, what's traditionally taught as insight practice um, in most traditions and in, 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 in Buddhism. These states also appear in Hinduism, um, and uh, the, the idea is you move into this altered state and then you start uh, you there's something about this altered state that makes it easier to then like contemplate things that will that potentially could like you'll have like a, a big aha moment that will then last with you off the cushion uh, and so historically they're kind of treated as if they're like improving your neural plasticity and then you're gonna have this big insight and it's gonna last off the off the cushion well there's some evidence that um, in very blissful and very like simultaneously focused and relaxed states, you you may see this increase in neuroplastic benefits. Like I, I'm like I'm drawing. This is a bit of a stretch here, but there's like some some re- some literature on like hypnosis and non-sleep deep breaths that suggests simultaneous relaxation and focus is um, associated with higher levels of neuroplasticity. And there's separate research that suggests um, like MDMA two uh, X is the size effects of um, psychotherapy uh, particularly for in, in specifically in addressing PTSD and what seems to be happening there is like the drug creates this like really like uh, abundance like loving kindness compassion environment in which you're able to revisit uh, really difficult times like past traumas and the trigger if you if you let that trigger kind of fire but in this like very um positive environment positive in this like kind of the neural the uh, like the level of neurons not um, creating a bunch of negativity for you then like um uh, it can, it, it no longer creates that like really terrible PTSD effect uh, uh, after your MDMA psychotherapy session. And so there may be some degree to which like you move into some of these states and then you're able to go looking for really tough things uh, or or sort of like larger and, and have aha moments that last with you off the cushion.
1: Yeah, all of that is is so fascinating. The, the thing that like even strikes me the mer- most is the, the thing we first talked about, right? The idea of instant gratification and you know i think of this i'll ask something along these lines later but the i think one of the keys to happiness is is reducing your dependence on the kind of instant gratification cycle um which in you know today's world is like kind of uh there's a lot of things that seem to be built to like resist this um you know your smartphone being one and like the the dopamine circuits of you know TikTok and the fact that every social media company has copied this UI. So I really like the the idea of being able to break out of that. You said like the S curve of poverty or the S curve of kind of negative decision-making or negative, um, you know, habit, habit patterns, I think is, is really cool. Um, so you talked about journey and you talked about these states a little bit. And so I guess let's break it down a little bit more. So you've, you've spoken of the, the neural correlates between these states that are happening and what you can observe in the lab, right? And so for me, coming from a neuroscience background, what I think of is like, um, you have an fMRI, you have an EEG, um, and those are the two main, I feel like there's more, but those are the two main, you can have a PET scan as well, but like, um, modes of, of measuring brain activity, right? And I, I'm interested to hear, you know, how that plays in to journey, and also, you guys are using EEG. If you want to maybe explain EEG and give some context to people who might not be um, familiar with the biology behind it, sure. Yeah, I, I can do both of those things. So, so starting with the
0: EEG, and then uh, talking about how we're using the journey. Uh, the the EEG is this. Um, really interesting tool where we are like doing our best from the outside to pick up on small signals that might give us a little sense as to what's happening and otherwise like a black box Um, and so uh, one analogy that people give is like listening on the outside of a football stadium and uh, you like know when like really big significant thing happens go because like the crowds go wild but like it's you have no idea what two people are saying to each other inside the stadium Uh, And what's happening here, the the analogy here is inside the brain you have uh, like a a few billion, you have something like almost 100 billion uh, neurons and uh, trillions of of synapses between these various neurons. And uh, there's an electrical potential that uh, moves down one neuron and then uh, at the the presynaptic neuron has an effect. That then uh, leads to another action potential in the postsynaptic neuron, and there's another, and that action potential, the small electrical impulse, travels down the cell, and so on and so forth. And um, there's a constant electrical activity happening across these cells all throughout your brain. When a number of these cells sort of line up, or like are, are operating in, um, maybe maybe they're aligned and they're operating all at once. The from the outside, it looks like the the electrical potential may be large enough to detect from the outside. So you have these. And then furthermore, uh, you have these neurons constantly communicating to one another. And so they're, they're moving in this direction, they're moving in that direction. And so in this part of the brain, you might have like back and forth signaling, and in this part of the brain, you might have back and forth signaling, or maybe it happened over a longer time span. And so you end up with these, what we call neural oscillations, uh, or also brain waves. And uh, all an EEG is, is we stick a couple of electrodes on your skull uh, from, uh, from the outside, and we listen. To see if we can pick up any electrical potential and if we can then and, and we like notice uh, how fast it's firing over a given period of time that might tell us something the rest of it is guesswork it's like we're going to try to map this like electrical potential to some special activity or behavior that uh somebody's up to and then over time infer something from the brain there, there's, there's actually there's also some fancy math you can do to um try to localize where in the brain a particular signal is coming from if you have enough electrodes um but by and large, what's really happening is, you do some when we when we do run these neuroscience studies, you do some activity. We look at the voltage that's happening on the outside of your head, and we uh, sort of like match that together. And then you do a different activity, and you see a little bit of different voltage, and we match that together, and so on and, forth and so forth. Um, these are called neurocorrelates—the matching of like what's happening in the EEG and what's happening in somebody's brain. And uh, what's great about neurocorrelates is you now have you. You now have like an objective third-party um, uh, measurement by which to infer what's happening on happening inside somebody's brain, and this is why we're so excited about EEG at Journey because we want to know what it. We want to know when you are in a jhana. Let's say you're an advanced meditator. We want to know what it looks like when you're in the jhana, when you're getting close to the jhana, um, and we want to know how that looks different from when you are not in the jhana. You're just like paying attention to your breath, or you're doing something else and once we have that once we have this like this neural correlate we can set our crosshairs on that and then optimize for it and help people who can't who haven't been to jhanas before start making their brain waves look more and more like the uh like the genre
1: so there's a lot to impact there i think and and maybe not so much and more kind of interested to go into the next step which is so let's you have an eeg and you have it observing you at a resting state and you have it observing maybe other people at a jhana like um, you know meditation state. And so it's observing your brainwaves as as you're approaching it. And um I guess how how does the EEG help get from the the resting state to kind of a jhana um, or a meditation state.
0: Yeah. So there's uh so so two answers to this question. Uh, one is closed loop neural feedback. And then the other is sort of like broader optimization. And the on the close of neurofeedback you can imagine your uh well let me say this way there's a boatload of guesswork that goes into learning how to enter into a jhana like meditation is just so invisible and pre-verbal that words are a really poor tool by which to guide you with precision and even if you have the best teachers in the world there's a lot of guesswork that happens in figuring out exactly, it's, it's, part of it might be how to follow the breath, part of it might be to zero in on this pleasant pleasant sensation. Well, there's probably a dozen different ways to follow the breath. Like you could imagine really seizing, clamping down on it with like all your, the intensity of all your intention. The, and, or you can imagine sort of relaxing into it and letting it just like take over your entire um, consciousness. Those could be two, they, they fo- both fit the criteria of following the breath and they could be moving in exact opposite directions um, in this so so-called state space of of meditation. Right? One is to the John and one is not. Uh, but you don't know because I've only told you how to follow the breath and like and and like. No matter what I say, there's always going to be lots of different things you could be like could be like you could be doing in your mind at any given point in time, and it's very difficult to then talk that out with the teacher. Um, uh, and so, what we want to do is we want to give you the instructions best we can, and then we want to give you a real time feedback loop, and so. The closed up neural feedback system is you get the instructions, and maybe you're listening to music as you meditate. And as you get closer to the goal state, the music gets quieter. And now you know you can, try, you can experiment in real time. You can like follow the road like you're driving down the highway, as opposed to just like walking around completely blindfolded in like an empty house. Um, and so uh, that's the closed up neural feedback system, and why we're so excited about uh, mapping the neural correlates and using this tool journey. We think it can just have like tremendous benefit there. There's this broader question though of like If you were able to nail the neural correlates of these states you'd be able to do all kinds of optimization because now we can we can see whether or not the instructions are good plus music or maybe it's like for some reason it's like we can we can monitor that you get there faster after you've worked out or like the social setting is really important or whether or not you have like an instructor that you really believe in all these different things become measurable in real time and with precision in a way that they weren't before
1: that's so interesting and the I, I love the uh, optimizing the outside factors too, right? And I think I think about this a lot that there should be more. Um, everyone should be involved in, in something where they're, they're able to put their brain, you know, to generate data for things like this, especially to like improve quality of life. So, yeah, that's that's super interesting. I'm actually doing a, a float tank, so I'm gonna try a long meditation cool. and a float tank. Uh, yeah,
0: good, so I've never done one of those, but I've I've heard um, good things, and I think they're. I think if you're in there long enough, it's like expected that you'll start to hallucinate. It's like really long. It's like six to eight hours or something, um, <laughs> which I don't have a lot of uh, like excitement about going to spend six to eight hours in a float tank. Uh, although maybe if I'm meditating.
1: Uh, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely interesting. So there's this idea that I think we talked about when we spoke before, similar to like the closed loop neural feedback and kind of away from just the neural feedback, but kind of learning how to learn, and how that kind of closed loop of, of learning is a little bit similar to the way that you can kind of learn to do anything, and getting that kind of sustained positive feedback is kind of part of this. Um, so I guess I can I can preface this in that you started um, with no exposure to neuroscience, and even before that with little exposure to, uh, you know, a lot of the computer science that goes behind it. So. I'm interested in maybe the audiences as well and like your, your journey of like learning how to learn and how that's helped you kind of get to where you are today.
0: Mm, yeah. I think it's crazy that you go through like all of K-12, right, with this like massive school system and you spend 12 years in it and uh, you don't take a single course on learning how to learn. And that's probably true of, your, of college too. And um, I think that's such a miss. And it turns out that like we know a good amount about that at this point. Um, there's things about like uh, uh, like diffuse versus focused brain, or like spaced repetition, or like uh, just like having a bit extra meta awareness for monitoring your energy levels, um, the importance of uh, chunking uh, content together, and like maybe making some of those chunks atomic, and then cobbling to that together in interesting ways, or um, uh, using sleep strategically to transition things from short term to long term memory, like. All these are tools that, like, would have been great to have dialed in when I was an undergrad. Um, but I, I sort of uh, learned because, like, uh, I was operating at a job that, like, needed more from me than I seemed to be capable of giving it at the time. Um, and so, so went heavy into this, and um, have been fortunate to, like, been uh, reaping the dividends since. Um, would you like me to talk a little bit about, like, how I, how then I went from? I, so I studied economics and was originally a management consultant for. Um, nonprofits and philanthropists. Uh, then I um, quit and learned to code uh, and was a software engineer for a, a number of years and then quit and learned the like preliminary neuroscience needed to r- really, really limited to like analyzing neural time, t- time series data from EEG and like a little bit of neural in order to be able to start uh, partnering with um, much more formal neuroscientists in order to to do this startup. Happy to dive into any piece of that puzzle or like learning to learn in the abstract, uh, whatever you think is...
1: Yeah, so I think there's a lot there. Like, the, I think the, the transition to neuroscience is interesting, and, and um, I, I totally agree with the learning how to learn. Like, the first time I learned about memory techniques, there's this idea that you can, like, uh, memory spaces or something like that is where you can kind of walk through a physical a physical space in your mind, um, and that's what, like, world-class People that used to memorize stuff use. Mm-hmm. I didn't learn about this, and I studied neuroscience, and I didn't learn about this until like a, one of my senior year classes. Um, <laughs> senior yeah. year. Uh, Amazing
0: how some of the practical stuff doesn't make it into the curriculum. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so that's that's interesting. So how was that transition into neuroscience for, in particular? So you're kind of in a in a you said specializing in a little bit of a niche of of analyzing EEG data.
0: Yeah. So, a couple, a couple pieces of the story. The first is I, at this point, um, th- this was this was my biggest like kind of self-teaching journey to date, um, and I'd had a number of them under my belt that made this seem doable. But I think a younger me, if you'd like re- rebound the clock four years and you've been like, hey, try to go be like a neuroscientist on your own, sufficient enough to run some experiments and like partner with some people at like Harvard or whatever. I've been like, you're out of your mind. <laughs> like, <laughs> what a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the, so, so number one, there's this uh, huge piece to which confidence that you that you can learn this is just totally a prerequisite. Um, and I actually think school does a really bad job of building that confidence uh, because you're uh, um, you're always like looking at the deficit between like you and 100%. Um, there's other reasons why looking at why like uh, school and grades are like really terrible for learning, um, but that's one of them. And so, so one, I had had a number of like autodidactic journeys, including like quitting my job, writing my first line of code, and and getting a Google offer like eight months later. Um, that were like, okay, if I take an, an earnest eight months here, I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna at least be able to make some ground on uh, the, the the very specific sliver of neuroscience that I'm interested in. Like, I don't need my PhD. The second was then, all right, how do I get get myself like in front of or, or really, like, acquire the best possible resources. So I just always assume a power law distribution in the resources that are available there. Like, there's going to be one or two resources that are going to be more valuable to me than all the rest combined, which means that, like, anytime I'm looking for a new resource, I want to do a little bit of breadth search first, and then, and so maybe I'll, like, I don't open any textbook until I've got 10 titles, uh, and and then uh, I'll, like, try to briefly read summaries or reviews of like, of, of, like, all 10 of them, pick one or two, and then dive deep on that. Um, and then there's this piece where uh, there's just like building as you go. And so like it's, I have like a spaced repetition habit uh, that makes sure that as I'm learning the fundamentals, they're really dialed in and I can grab them easily so I can kind of build up to the next run. I think oftentimes the, the biggest hurdle to learning something quickly is like you're, you are you kind of know the fundamentals, but they're not that fluent. Um, and so this is where like memory actually rats it up. It's not just that memory is good for retention. It's that memory is good for learning faster. Um, So I have uh, a whole habit, like, uh, there. We, fortunately, live in a time and place where there's, like, amazing content available for free online. And so getting the textbooks but also finding fantastic Udemy courses uh, or similar is um, uh, something that uh, was a big priority when I first quit my job. And then after a period of time, you're, like, you kind of, like, you're using um expand like you're brainstorming and, and looking broad to find the right resources then you're going deep and then you've got new questions and so then you go broad again and then you go deep and you alternate between conversion and diversion like study or thinking um and after a number of courses maybe a couple thousand flashcards i'm getting to the point where it's like i think some of these questions are now better answered with people and and this is exciting because now i can now like if i find the right person who doesn't love getting a call from somebody that's like <laughs> hey you're the only person in the world who can answer my question. Like, will you talk to me for 30 minutes? Like, everybody loves that. Like, that's, like, <laughs> that's like being asked for advice on steroids. And so it, it got to the point where then I was, there were a number of authors that I wanted to talk to about my, like, my next questions um, and, or uh, people that I admired. And so I started reaching out to folks in the field that can develop into a little bit of like a friendship or further connections. Um, and this snowballs. I was originally a guy who was just interested. And then I was a guy who was like doing some experiments And then I was a guy who was like doing some experiments and having some interesting results. And like, maybe we should do some of this together. uh, And that eventually led to ultimately to the team we built today.
1: That's amazing. That's so cool. I'm a little bit envious of it. I I need to get, I want to start doing some of this stuff on just really the diving deep part. I feel like this is probably the case maybe for a lot of people out there where the, um, I can watch a lot of YouTube videos, but having a system to like systematically like dive deep, and, as opposed to doing the shallow is, is uh, at least for me, what's hard. And what I think is actually kind of cool about what you said earlier that connects is like, and what excites me about the the genre work is if that kind of carryover for long-term um, optimization of like long-term results versus short-term um, gratification, which I think is important for learning and discipline and setting up habits, the more we can like, personally, the more I can be, be able to do that and access that um I think I'm gonna get better at anything that I want to do but also the more that we can kind of spread that out and make that like a cultural like norm and make it like accessible to people I think um we'll make more like learning journeys kind of like you described uh more common and I think that would be awesome. So <laughs> um it's it's really cool to to hear those back to back for sure. Um yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah there is a um
1: there is a
0: i think often underappreciated link between so so actually a couple of different things one is like mood and quality decisions another is like mood and maybe like cognition just like what um uh, a, a third i this is this is like hot take for me uh, is there might be another one about like mood and habit building um, and uh, some of this stuff, when you start, like, you know, what would just list off there? Like, uh, um, instant gratification and like quality decisions, like maybe some like problem solving uh, and habit building, like you're starting to put together the, the pieces for like one hell of a virtuous cycle. Um, and so, finding ways to like put yourself on that flywheel uh, and let that run, I think can pay dividends in the long run.
1: Definitely. I feel like, and this is, I don't really want to dive into this too much because I have some other questions, but. I feel like that's a lot of what religions in general have been trying to do is kind of give people some guidance on, hey, maybe do these things or don't do these things and, you know, the strictness of it or whatever doesn't really matter, but some of the guidance behind why you're doing these things or developing a practice, you know, um, having some consistency in your life is, yeah, sort of the, you know, anecdote to the, the opposite. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, and there is like...
0: There is certainly a degree to which like morality at its best is uh, like, a, like a blueprint to living like a, a, either a fulfilling or an effective life or both. Um, and at its worst is like should language, like just nothing more than like a list of rules. Like there's that great quote, I think, by Marshall Rosenberg that should is the most violent word in the English language. And like so often we associate morality with like being I don't know, being a prude or like checking the boxes. And it's this hollow thing you do so that like some like ultimate judge at the end of your life is going to throw you into heaven or hell. Um, and there's another, like, I think in many ways, like the core of, or, uh, or the kernel from which all of this started is likely like, no, actually it turns out if you sort of get your life in order, um, you're just a little happier and a bit more effective. And, uh, if you're a bit more ha- happier and a bit more effective then like, you can do more and get your life further in order. And like,
1: there you go. Another one of those positive feedback loops, just trying to slip Uh-oh. into those, bunch of wheels you just want to get on the right one or hamster wheel but uh yeah that's that's super interesting i kind of want to pivot here a little bit and talk about what it's like starting a company so i don't really know what it's like to start a company because i haven't done it i've thought about potentially doing it in the future after i get some more experience under my belt i don't know what it'll be yet i have some ideas but What's it been like? Like, how, like, <laughs> where it's a little stressful.
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is, um, I imagine every journey is unique. And, uh, I certainly don't feel like I'm an authority on it. Uh, I'm, I'm like, uh, you know, building this airplane while we're flying it, uh, for <laughs> sure. So, um, I'm trying to think of what would be the best way to, Capture what it's been like to start a company. Um, one of the things that stands out right away is uh, skin in the game, and how uh, so. There's a couple quotes that I think really capture the power of the of having skin in the game. One is uh, about incentives. I think it's. Um, Buffett, who said like if you can be working on incentives, you shouldn't be working on anything else, and uh, the degree to which, and I think a uh, Munger, who's uh, works with Buffett, um, also has a quote that's like, "I'm, I'm almost certainly the 95th percentile of my age cohort for appreciating the significance of incentives, and every year I underestimate them." Like, there's this, there's just this degree to which so much of the behavior around us can be explained by. Um, incentives, some of which that are uh, that are hidden. And um, most of all, that's true for myself. Like, and putting putting the incentives in place uh, will now, will very much change my behavior like a month from now. Um, and the fact that I have seen the game and like the company like um, is going to live or die by me, um, and like uh, my heart and soul are being poured into this thing is a very different ball game than uh, being an engineer at a big tech company. Um, and is changing me personally uh, in ways that I'm really excited about. Uh, I think it's holding me accountable and um, requiring that I make uh, strategic but bold bets, like in a way that's different if you're if you're just like you know plugged in somewhere. the The other great quote that I think captures this is um, oh, uh, it's like the three most addictive things in the world are heroin, carbohydrates, and a monthly salary. I think that's it yeah I think that's and I think that's Nassim Taleb and uh that is that I think really captures how having a monthly salary is a wildly different way of living than um uh like to the to the degree of like having carbs or not carbs you diet. maybe not to the degree of like being on heroin or off heroin but <laughs> we'll give them a little slack on that one <laughs> but uh, uh so that that's the other way I think in, in which it's a big deal um the oh oh and the other thing so so one thing is like how the incentives have changed me and and skin of the game I think the other thing that I think is uh, really interesting is um, how it changes what I daydream about and this this may seem really subtle but um, Paul Graham's got this uh, really interesting article about how like he calls it something I'm gonna butcher it something like top of the stack and. It's like at any given point, you're uh, you probably have like some things that are percolating in the back of your mind, like in your subconscious. And if you were to just like zone out for a little bit, um, the top one, the most important one to you, is gonna is gonna loom to the the foreground, and the rest probably won't. Like like if there's some if like something happened with your girlfriend for the last like couple of days, like that's really gonna be tough mind, or something happening at work or with your family, and. This suggests, and and because there's like so much powerful processing that happens in the subconscious and in the like in in that diffuse brain thinking or like when you're sleeping, it's actually really valuable to have whatever is top of your stack uh, to be the most important thing to you. Um, It's kind of like it would. You can imagine this. This makes intuitive sense if you imagine like there's always some little anxious thing that's happening. Like maybe there's some like really like tough relationship that you're in. um, That would just like totally suck. Your top of the stack out of the game for like the entire duration in which you're in that tough period, and you can you contrast that to like maybe you're just like on fire, or, like chasing your dream, like and so being in something is as all-consuming. And as starting a company and just thinking about this day in and day out, um, I think has made the top of the stack um, all of a sudden like come alive for me in a way that it hadn't before, which um, has been fun.
1: I I love that idea. I was actually talking to a friend recently about how. Your, are and this is like tangential but connected in a way and how like the your perception of like your role in society or your perception of your role and like what you're doing in the day-to-day like you can be doing anything you know you can be doing like bartending or you can be doing you know potentially working in like a salary job but it's the way that you think about it and the way that that and i think it makes those it, it, it if you think about it in a positive way then it brings it up to the top, like you said of that subconscious, and then it becomes a more positive thing that's aligned with what you want to do. Whether that what you want to do is get really good at this one little like craft that you're doing, or if it's building a company, or if it's, um, you know, in a positive way, like making a relationship better. It's like when, you, when you're when you really like fully, like you said, and dove in and kind of be- believing behind something, I think it brings that, that stuff to the top. That's, uh, I really like that. And, and it also kind of goes back to the whole you, you talked about the like negative feedback loop of like poverty and how like if there are these these yeah. overarching negative you know things in your head that you're doing with it's gonna it's like really hard to break out of right um, yeah. yeah yeah that's I really like that idea um, yeah I could and then in incentive in structures I could do bullshit for days and like talk about like. <laughs> <laughs> society and how like where do we put incentive structures, but I don't know. Any, I don't have any knowledge to actually talk about that with any sense of...
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure a ton of people, like incentives are hard. Incentives are really hard. Um, there's like a couple things that you want that to, I, that I think are like just obvious anti-patterns or watchouts, um, but it's really valuable to just like always be like looping on that, being like how could I change my own incentives? Or, like what
1: incentives are at play here? Like I think it, that can be pretty powerful. Definitely. I'm wanting to do more research on incentives now after this after this talk. So uh, another thing I kind of want to switch into here um, is advice for people who've never meditated before. So mm. yeah, so I got introduced to it through, you know, some a summer class that I took and I'm extremely grateful for that. Um, but advice on people that say where to start, you know, you talked about how difficult it is for some people to reach a jhana or how difficult it is for some people to just you know, they're sitting down. and They're thinking. Oh, I can't do this. I can't do this. Right? Like, like, how do you, how you recommend people start? Do you have places that they should look? Um, yeah. Yeah. This is this is a tough question.
0: I, I, I get asked this a lot, uh, and I still think it's tough. Uh, I have a couple things that I I think are really good, uh, like starting points, but that the the answer is likely context dependent. Like, like, kind of person by person, like, sort of looking at like me as a system. What's sort of like the idiosyncratic set of things that is going to make it most likely for me to um, like, kind of take off and succeed in meditation. Um, but there's a couple of things that I think that like uh, apply uh, universally. The first is people often think about meditation being this, like, disciplined, thoughtful thing. You're going to build this habit. You're going to have this, like, deep internal peace and calm, like a ninja, and, like, the craziness of the world around you isn't going to get to you. And, like, um, I think that image can very quickly lead to, like, a self, like, a very subtle form of self-criticism, which is, like, I'm not that. And how am I going to get there? And, like, I think the journey to this uh, hypothetical ninja is 100% first with self-compassion like and there's there's a couple of additional like heuristics that I think are valuable here one is uh sometimes it just makes zo- like zero sense to think of me as like a singular I. it's just so much it makes it, it seems so much more accurate to think of me as like a bunch of like uh like competing pieces um uh in some sense like different little mini-me's uh, I often think of them as like a like and and they're not, like, none of them are particularly, um, let's say, sophisticated. It's, like, the part of me that's hungry, and it's a part of me that's, like, uh, impatient, and it's a part of me that wants to avoid conflict, and another part of me that wants to look good. And all these different, like, uh, parts of me are, like, no better than just, like, a crazy muck of, like, U9 soccer players running around chasing a ball. And they're all, like, and maybe some of them stub their toe and are crying, and some of them are, like, trying to, like, kick each other and this, this disaster. And like the way you don't, the way you coach a U-9 soccer team is um, through uh, like a lot of patience and affirmation and like, come here, little Joey, like have a seat on the bench. Like, thank you for trying to scold that gore for us. I really appreciate that. And like, also thank you for like raising to my attention that we are hungry and like, well, let's work on that. And this, this sort of like, this is, this is a fun and funny analogy it actually has like a lot of support in something like internal family systems, which is a form of therapy. It also a lot of support in certain meditation models, which like so much of the experience is about like learning to be aware of the different parts of yourself. And then, and then no longer like habitually just like shutting one out or like uh, dismissing it. In fact, finding a way to more holistically integrate it. And so I think the like, absolutely the first thing to do in chasing a meditation habit um, and and doing meditation itself is like deeply embedded in self-compassion. And I think that's just often skipped over uh, when we're, when we're first thinking about it. Then the second thing is that um, it's easier to bootstrap an experience, or sorry, build, bootstrap a habit with an experience. And so like starting from a place where you, maybe you want to meditate 20 minutes a day or something, and that's it. All you're doing is you're like, I'm gonna meditate 20 minutes a day. Like that's all, good on you, like great, go for it. Like build your habit, get to your three week mark, and then your six month and your 18 month mark if you find if you if you find a way to like inside that meditation window have some really profound or fantastic experience you're all like a bunch of you 9 soccer players are going to pick up their head and they're going to want to meditate in the future in a way they didn't want before and it's going to be a lot easier to get that team um building that habit and so what this means i think is like you can start being strategic about how to create an experience inside meditation you could like toggle explore exploit trade-offs you could like uh look for different techniques that resonate with you you could consider like doing some music or not doing some music you could look at guided versus not guided like all the just all the kind of the classic like start to learn something new and explore the state space and then learn to to where to jump um all all begins to apply and i think that can be helpful uh, when
1: you're building habit i could totally see how the yeah getting a a really positive experience out of a out of meditation. Um, you know, jhana or not jhana would be a big incentive. Yeah, like you said, for all the pieces of you to pick their head up and start playing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yes, yeah. along. That's um, um yeah, I I'm, I like that idea. So
0: you I, can imagine jumping in just to like finish that thought. Like like, there's a lot of creative ways you can look at like trying to create an experience. Like, it, it may be going on just like rather than trying to build a habit, first, you just jump into a retreat. and that retreat makes it way more likely you're gonna um, have an experience or have um, uh, like something that then kind of pulls you back into it. You could look at like identity effects or commitment effects, um social accountability, like all kinds of other stuff um, that may either build a habit or help create an experience like like um, um,
1: but yeah, like helpful. And so, to kind of back up on a retreat, so if people don't know what a meditation retreat is, and I haven't done one, but I and dying to do one. Um, <laughs> so, I I believe I remember when we were talking that one of the things that got you really kickstarted was that you went to a retreat. I like did early yeah. in your early in your uh, meditation kind of career, um, if that's what you call it, I guess. But um yeah, so c- can we just break down a retreat real quick and and then like kind of because a lot of people don't know that that exists and um, yeah, it's it's something that I think is cool. cool show. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I can talk just a second about a retreat and then I can also say sort of like how it, how it rocks my world, um, and how it created the experience that built my meditation habit and this, like, I think really transformed my mental health. Um, so, uh, there's all kinds of different meditation retreats taught by both of different teachers and different traditions, but, um, what it is is like, and there's non-residential and residential, um, but what it is, is you, uh, go someplace and you meditate a lot and, uh, often like, you either pay or, uh, or volunteer and you have your meals taken care of like taken care of for you so like, the only thing you're worrying about is meditation and this creates just in the same way that uh, like singular focus is used for um getting good at sports or study or all kinds of stuff this um is just like really beneficial for going deep um often you're silent uh and this has this really interesting effect or if you've never been silent for three days um the it, it can really have like You'll be amazed at how much of your experience and all of your thoughts are a function in the last 72 hours. And if you've been only meditating and quiet for the last 72 hours, the thoughts that loom up suddenly in your experience are going to be very different. There's likely, likely going to be a lot less of them. Uh, and they're probably going to be softer. Well, softer in the sense that they're not, like, they, might, they might actually be. You know, forget that. They're, they're, when you're a few days on the retreat, like some some pretty gnarly stuff can come can come up, and you're wondering where that came from. But, uh, so real quick, um, on what what the experience was like for me, I was in this really tough mental health spot um, four years ago. I was um, breaking up with a, a partner, breaking up with a co-founder, uh, and had some really tough fi- family dynamics going on. Uh, had gone from two jobs to no job, and uh. Also unbeknownst to me is I just had, like, had developed these mountains of self-critical habits, like thought habits, like si- like split seconds, just like looping in my head. Um, I had been like a sort of like accomplishment driven undergrad and had this like high pressure job for a couple of years. So I went on this retreat as a Hail Mary to see if I could come up with something else to help me navigate the tough time. And uh, as indicative of how dark things were, I think I induced three migraines in eight days just like falling apart at the seams. And the last day out of desperation, I did something differently. And this made all the difference um, to my uh, surprise and delight. My stress headache went away. And I ended up in this altered space where I was just streaming tears of joy for like 60 minutes and spacious gratitude. And afterwards I was like, what the heck? <laughs> how, does, how on earth does that like wild peak experience happen to me at such a dark time? Like, Is that a fluke or is that replicable? If that's replicable, that's a big deal, I need to know. And it's worth, it's, it's worth a lot of cost on my end to figure out whether or not that's replicable. So I committed, I knew almost nothing about meditation, um, had done no reading, and but committed to an hour a day for the next four months to see if I could recreate the experience. And about 10% of the time, after about 45 minutes, I would start tearing up again enough to keep me excited but not enough to solve any of my mental health challenges because 9 out of 10 days i'm still host, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm dropping my hour and like i got a little yeah it was calm and quiet afterwards but it wasn't like um something really opened up four four months later that's 80 percent of the time so now i'm stoked that this is starting to look like skill development so i doubled down i i committed big on this uh, i did two to three hours a day rotated the technique every seven days and um sure enough started happening more consistently um, faster via multiple techniques, and then once I was sort of in this altered state, I realized I could change the arousal level. Uh, I knew nothing about jhanas at the time, but um, I had sort of it ended up like it ended up being that I kind of hacked my way into this, uh, and then thought I had like won the lottery. Like <laughs> six hundred hours meditation, ten months later, I'm my mental health has done a one eighty. I'm approaching all time high recently at all time low. Like think there is nothing more I want to share in the world with family and friends. Seems completely intractable. Like I. Because to send them on a 10-day meditation retreat where you meditate for 10 hours a day and wake up at 4 a.m. and then run personal experiments for 10 months. And by the way, I know people have meditated longer than I have, and only some of them are having these experiences. Like, good luck. Um, <laughs> so that was actually where the 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 dream of getting tight on um, what was happening uh, to me was, was born. Um, but it seems totally intractable, so I largely forgot about it, or like you, you know, sat on the back burner. Until I discovered last year that the jhanas Were a thing. There's probably five to fifteen thousand people in the states um, regularly um, practicing these states and having these experiences. It suddenly seemed like this was very replicable beyond just me. I I read a book for the first time on the jhanas and got goosebumps. I was like, "Whoa! Like this is exactly what happens to me." But nobody's explained this before. What? And then it proved not just descriptive but predictive because um, there, there, I had discovered three jhanas on myself on my own, but there, there are more. Um, And then when I discovered the early neuroscience behind it, that was when I started thinking about maybe I should quit my job. Like maybe we need to really chase this one in
1: earnest. That's great. That ties everything together so well. And and yeah, I I think we're going to, we're going to cook that one out and put it, put it in the beginning uh, (laughs) to introduce introduce the podcast for sure. So final, final question, kind of a cheesy question I like to ask people is what's been the biggest key to happiness in your life? So another way is like, what do you think the meaning of life is? But I think it's better to ask what has been a key to happiness in your life. Yeah.
0: Oh, man. Um, I'm having just like a, a, I'm having, I'm feeling blessed right now that that a number of ideas are are coming to the forefront. Um, I think maybe. Maybe the single greatest one is a sense of agency. Just like this, and it's something you can actually change over time. Uh, uh, It it helps to have like a big dose to start, but just this sense that like there's this, that like I have agency over, I think particularly in changing myself. Like sort of just like seeing myself as this really complex uh, interdependent system uh, in which like I only get like a little tiny sliver of like I'm like, I don't know, like the... Uh, the Wizard of Oz. There's just like crazy, all this crazy stuff happening, and I've got like my little room behind the curtain, and I'm like, and like this crazy thought is coming out of nowhere, and then I'm like, and then how I decide to think about it next ends up somehow going back into the subconscious system and like rewiring it in the future, and then it and then that means like three months from now it's going to come flying back out in a different way, and so so but what this means is that I'm kind of like a I'm kind of like a programmer, like I like there's there's a whole lot of code running out. Uh, like r- get m- making sure the whole company is running. At any given bit time, I'm just writing a little bit of it, just a little tiny little bit of it. But like over time, that amounts being the entire system. And the notion that like I can change, um, I can like totally change my my personality by like slowly, instead of the rewriting my stimuli and response patterns. There's like some good evidence. Like I think for a long time, people thought personality was static. Like Big Five personality traits don't don't change. But if you look on a long enough time horizon. Um, it turns out they, they change like dramatically so um, and you could like really accelerate that by uh, um, uh, just being really intentional about the stimuli response patterns that you want to rewrite and then there's lots of fantastic tools to do this ranging from like habit building to meditation um, uh, and this can make you a better partner uh, to like your loved ones and uh, um, that has a way of like cascading and, and snowballing that like Particularly, agency and changing myself um, uh, can can lead to some material
1: differences in happiness between today and some time in the future. Wow! Well, thank you so much. What a way to end. Um, this has been awesome. Thank you, Stephen. And I could not be more happy to have had you on this podcast. I'm so excited oh, to uh, to keep in touch. This is this is amazing. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, cool. Um, uh, I'm flattered and warm to hear that, Brendan. It's been fun.
1: All right. If you made it here, this little uh, Easter egg is for you. I'm thinking of changing the name of the podcast to Spreading the Stoke. So, the idea is that um, stoke is a word for being excited. You know, you're stoked to go climbing, you're stoked to go surfing. Um, and I want to spread the stoke for science and spread the stoke for, I don't know, things that other people are stoked about that I'm also stoked about. So that's kind of the idea of this podcast, and I want to know what you think. If you made it here, most people don't. Um, Yeah, otherwise, uh, that's it, and have a wonderful day.